Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up-to-date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's macy's.com slash gift finder today. This is The Run Through. I'm Chloe Mel. And I'm Cher Bernardi. And what a show we have for you today. Oh my God, I can't believe it. But we've got Mark Jacobs. <laughs> I, I truly, my jaw fell to the floor <laughs> when myself. I found out that he said yes to this. And he was here in the flesh. I saw his security badge ID photo. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't wait to listen to this interview and just I know, get I heard it so was deep into it. quite a uh, blockbuster interview. We have Nicole Phelps, our Vogue Runway colleague, right here in the flesh with us also today. And it is right on the eve of New York Fashion Week. So Nicole has many important things to be doing. But Nicole, tell us about what Mark was like. And also, you just went to the show on Friday evening. He started posting about his 40th anniversary in January. Oh so my God. <laughs> we were all, you know, we all had a hunch that it would be a big, big moment. But of course, Mark Jacobs shows are always really big. And it was a show that really pushed limits uh, in terms of silhouette and, of course, in terms of those insane bouffant wigs and the clown shoes that some of the models were wearing. And uh, the set was uh, punctuated by this uh, art piece, a giant uh, folding table and chair by this artist named Robert Therian. Mm. And so big that the models walked under it as they uh, came wow. out from backstage. And uh, the vibe felt sort of like a, a dollhouse. I think, you know, a 40th anniversary is a really big deal. And I think he's been thinking a lot about uh, what he's finding done. Finding his 40s, inner child. Yes, finding his inner child, uh, what he's accomplished in these 40 years and what he still wants to do. He's not done with fashion yet. He has more to say. And we got to talk about the big hair. It does feel like suddenly, like, beauty is the moment, right, in these shows. Uh, this after doll beauty. Galliard, sort of... after, oh, yeah, it's doll beauty. The doll, the doll skin, now the doll hair. Well, it's also Dita Blair hair, but to each his own. But also think about <laughs> Miley Cyrus at the Grammys. Yes, I, think, I know. I think something's changing. I feel higher the hair, the closer to God. <laughs> Big 
almost regal display at the Dune premieres around the world. I know. What, what a gift for those of us uh, who pray at the altar of Zendaya and Timothée and Florence Pugh. They were really turning it out across the globe. And it was so nice to see you know, young British design talent represented on the carpet because I think it is hard as a young designer to get like to get a word in edgeways with 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 the red carpet because you know obviously you're competing with these big brands. It was so refreshing to see Florence Pugh in Standing Ground, um, which is a kind of almost semi couture brand in the UK um, by this young designer Michael Stewart, who's amazing. She wore this long, very fluid. Um, white dress that was gathered. And and what's so special about Michael's work is that he sort of, it's all very textures and he embeds these, I think they're almost like beads into the dresses. So it it has this almost like like a spinal feel. Uh, And then... And then tell me everything about Zendaya's outfit. Yeah, I mean, Zendaya's look was, was pretty incredible. It was like this beautiful crop top and high slit skirt that had these padded details along the shoulder and it was in different shades of gray and black and red. And then there were these circular details on the skirt too. And it felt very kind of futuristic almost. It was very, it felt very dune-like. And totally. It, yeah. For me, and it was actually, like volcano, but make it fashion. It was, exactly. <laughs> and who was this designer, Choma? People were very excited, but I was not familiar with them. Yeah, young, young uh British Nigerian Brazilian designer by the name of Tori Shiju Dumi. And she presented her collection in Paris, actually, her debut. So a lot of people, there were all eyes on her then. I think it was last season, if I'm correct. And so we're all kind of looking forward to what she does next. And that's what we love about Zendaya and Laura Roche, who works with her on her fashion looks. I mean, she's so fearless with what she wears. And she can pull off the most amazing look. She really can pull off anything, but actually takes advantage of that. Yeah. And then um, exciting news for the Vogue office uh, earlier this week was that Zach Posen is now the creative director of Gap, which everyone was not expecting to hear. Um, no, from wedding dresses to white T-shirts. Let's see what he does. Oh, look at you, Choma. You wrote that. The headline writes itself. <laughs> <laughs> Choma, we're so excited to see you here in a few days. Any yeah. uh, any plans besides shows for your big New York City trip? I feel like there's not going to be much time for anything but shows. Um, what are you excited about? Which shows? I'm excited for Proenza. I'm excited to see Diatima. I'm not here for the entire run, but it's always nice to get a, a kind of feel for New York. A taste of you? New York Fashion Week? A taste of New York Fashion Week. How about you? Uh, I think same thing. I'm excited to um, I'm excited for Altazara's 15th anniversary. He's having oh, a very yes, intimate, yes, yes. small show. Joseph sent out all God. the invitations himself. I always love a Michael Kors show because they feel like a big sort of same. event. Tori's always fun. Oh, I love Tori shows. I'm sad to be missing. I'm not going to be able to see my dear friend Batsheva or Raul Lopez's um, Luar show. They're closing out the week, aren't they? But yeah. I, um, I'm sure they'll be amazing. And Willie Chavaria, everyone here is very oh, excited gosh, about. Willie, how could we forget? Yes, there's a lot of excitement about that. The run through will be back in just a moment with Mark Jacobs.
I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411 and sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials and always with a cocktail in hand. Always. So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. And we're back. I think we should just dive right into Nicole and Mark's convo, right? I mean, I'm very excited to hear this. Yes, let's dive right in. I am here with Mark Jacobs, who is coming off a fabulous show last Friday. You probably saw it all over your Instagram feeds uh, over the weekend because the pictures were incredible, and it was a milestone moment, Mark's 40th anniversary in fashion. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. (laughs) So congratulations on your anniversary. Uh, I want to start off by talking about uh, the fact of 40 years. It's a real milestone. How does it feel? And, you know, longevity is something we talk about a lot. It's not easy to achieve. How does, how does it feel this moment? Uh, I have so much to say on this subject. First of all, I, I don't think me and the design team, we weren't really f- worried, concerned, thinking about this anniversary. I mean, there are other things going on within the company to celebrate the 40th anniversary, which will come soon. But uh, we just thought, like we do with every season, we've got to work on a collection and a show. And during the process, um, there may have been, you know, things that came up that reminded me and us of this big birthday. And, um, I go down memory memory lane very easily. And so, of course, thinking about all these years and how it started and what was first, like this was a first for me. It, was for, it started all with a sweater. And then this was the first bag we ever designed. And this was the first time we did that, you know. So I think the knowing of the anniversary got triggered me into thinking about these kind of firsts or collections that I always – appreciated and yeah and so you did this collection of pieces that it was sort of like an easter egg experience (laughs) for all of us triggering our own memories so i wasn't familiar with the artist robert theron the uh the sculptor who who made these pieces yes and uh it was a giant folding chair a folding table Mm. and a chair at the back of the runway and four folding chairs four and so how how did you encounter his work and i'm curious did it spark the dollhouse aspect of the of the clothes? So um, the first time I saw a piece by Robert was at the Broad in Los Angeles. 
and it's a wooden dining table. And I, I mean, I, as an art collector and art lover, I experience what I call a primitive connection to certain works. And I can't really articulate it as well as I'd like to, but I get this sensation and this feeling like of home, like some kind of comfort. That's, you know, that's what I loved about this dining table. It, I just looked up at it with wonder. And I think since this show has happened, I've read a couple of things by different journalists, and they've pointed out what my wonder is, and it is that of a young person who looks up two things, whether it's his mother getting dressed or whether it's the scale of a piece of furniture, with a kind of awe. And for people who, who weren't there, I think we, we should talk about sort of the perspective-skewing nature of what happened. These pieces are so big that the models could literally walk underneath them. And so it it sort of did something to your eye as you as you watched them from the back of the runway come at you. They looked like almost in miniature a, a little bit. Yeah. It's a very long runway. Yes, it was from Park Avenue to or Lexington to Park. Very long. Yeah, which I liked. I don't know. I, I thought of the sculpture also in relation to the space in which we put it. And the armory is so enormous. I mean, what I always find luxurious about showing there is this idea of creating a very, very intimate show in the center of this enormous space. It's a city block, you know, all the way around and a big city block. I find emotionally that um, working that way or showing that way um, creates a kind of emotion for me of like, again, being very small because the surrounding is so huge. And I kind of like that feeling. Again, I think it talk about age or time passing and all that stuff. I always wish I could look at things now the way I did when I was like a nine-year-old kid who couldn't wait to get back to school clothes because everything was so monumental. Is part of the point of what you're doing trying to get us to feel that sense of wonder too? I always say like I have, you know, seven minutes or ten minutes to entertain a group of people that are pretty hard to get to, you know, some of them. Because now I have to say that the audience, I know very few people in that audience. You know, there's a handful or two handfuls of people in that audience of 200 that I know. The rest, with the exception of a few friends, I don't know. I don't know who they are anymore. I don't know who the new editors are or who the influencers are or whatever. So I go about trying to tell this story. And yes, what I'm looking for is some kind of emotional reaction. In this case, wonder, do you feel, was it a reaction to sort of the world around us? Or is it a response to you know, the state of fashion, the speed uh, with which we are sort of moving through things and consuming things? Yeah, that's a favorite, like, of the fashion people. Like, oh, it was a response to this and this wor- the world. And, you know, I, I mean, I might not be very popular for saying this, but, <clears throat> and maybe people will not agree, but I live in a fashion world, right, which is a bubble. And it's a real bubble. It exists within a bigger picture. Um, But it's a tiny little bubble. And 
I'm okay with that. I mean, my job is to be creative and to share the results of my creativity with this little tiny microcosm of a world. And that's cool. It's great. Does it save, help, or change anything that's going on in the greater world? Absolutely not. But it's contributing something beautiful or interesting. And I think that is benevolent, right? That to me, I mean, I don't need to apologize for not being in cancer research or a politician. You know, those are somebody else's interests and somebody else's jobs. I can do my part as much as possible to be contributing to the good of the world. And I think part of that comes from being creative and putting that creativity out there. It would be wrong to say I'm not influenced by the world at large, because I am. I'm a person in that world, and I see hideous things happening in politics and in all the areas that we know that are just super screwed up. So it does affect me, but I'm not sure it affects the clothes. Well, your creativity has definitely affected me. And as I was preparing for this and I was thinking about uh, my earliest Marc Jacobs shows and I crashed mm. the uh, the show, I think it was spring 1998, where you played Bittersweet Symphony. Mm. And I felt when I was there that it was exactly where I wanted to be. And I think that you create these kinds of really strong emotional reactions in designers. And I, I would love to know... Do you do your collections for yourself or for your audience? Okay. So (laughs) I, ever since I was uh, a kid, I performed in some way, whether it was bringing home an ashtray I made in the ceramics workshop at summer camp or I loved to make things. I really do love to make things. And that I do for me. The process of making is for me. But what I make is for the audience. Absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it. I I read the reviews. Uh, I look to see who's posting now. What I used to say about clothes when we were selling them, you know, to more stores and stuff is that the ultimate Compliment the completion of the process is to be on the street and see somebody carrying your bag, wearing your pea coat, whatever. Because, like, without that, your process isn't done. It's just like part of the process. Well, speaking of the street, one thing I have noticed is your tote bags. <laughs> they really are um, everywhere. You know, I walk by them, I see young people with them on the subway. And so, how does it feel to be? sort of back on everybody's lips in the sense that, you know, they're toting around the uh, logo bag with your name on it. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm grateful for it. First of all, it really brings a lot, a lot of business, you know, and that's I'm lucky because I couldn't do the show if it didn't if, if it weren't for the business that we did with a more democratic priced product. Mm -hmm. And it does it is very weird for me at my age and having been through so many different things. You know, there was a time where our Venetia bag became extremely popular. It played a role in The Devil Wears Prada. You know, like, it was an iconic kind of it bag when people used to call a bag an it bag. I don't know if they still do that. But I I was surprised and shocked that this bag became so popular or is so popular. You know, I couldn't couldn't have imagined this happening kind of again. I just felt we'd be like an older, like out of the way 
kind of brand where other editors my age who've been through this before would relate, but nobody else younger. Can you think about that a little bit? Because there is, (laughs) we all, I think we all accept the fact that, you know, we all age, designers age, and, you know, they do become, you know, the older generation and it's time for new people to, to make a mark. But you have a unique ability um, proven by by this bag, but also proven by the emotions that we are that are triggered, you know, by your shows of really staying, um, you know, in the current moment of the current moment. I mean, how do you, how do you manage it? I struggle, honestly. I I struggle with this idea of being relevant, you know, and getting old or being old. I should say I'm not getting <laughs> I'm getting older, but. Um, I'm not done. Like, I still want to tell stories, and I still want to work in fashion. So even if the world is on to the next younger thing, I just don't want to give up because I'm older. Um, but I do I do really struggle with it. I mean, I'm on uh, Zoom meetings with my shrink, you know, twice a week, and we're talking, you know, a lot about it. And, and the world has changed so drastically. I never thought I'd be that person who was shocked that like somebody 40 has not doesn't know the references I'm making and uh, or somebody 20 has no idea of what I'm talking about when I start talking about the things I love or the people who've inspired me and um, it's it's a really strange position to be in and besides the digital uh, age and and my kind of Luddite sensibility to anything electronic or digital or computers, whatever. I don't even know how to refer to it. I sound like what my grandmother would say when she'd say, like, well, in my day. I guess one thing that makes it okay for me when I think about it is that our references are are, are what make us us, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And my memories and my references have great meaning and importance to me. And there are some seasons, I have to say, I think one of the most joyous things about this last show for me is that I was, I felt I didn't have to apologize or hide or feel ashamed of celebrating some of these references. I mean, this time, even when we were doing like the hair and makeup, I was like, here's a picture of Dee Dee Ryan. Here's a picture of Diana Ross. Here's a picture of, you know, Dee Dee Blair. Like, I didn't care. I was like, these are among the references, you know. Talk about the clothes a little bit in this collection. There was a lot of, uh, I guess you could even say strange constructions, right? The shapes, the proportions. Yeah. What, what turned you on about those shapes? I, we would be in the fitting room, and I would look at something. Joseph was working. Joseph is the, in charge of women's design, and he's a great designer. And we worked together for so many years. But I would walk into the fitting room, and he'd be in there, and Matt and Ryan, who worked with him. And I would see a dumb pencil skirt, but the waistband was, like, floating about two inches away from the body, like front, sides, and back. And I would be like, that's the magic that we want this time. Like, it— I mean, it had hip pads inside. It was bonded to neoprene. There was so much inner construction going on. But when you looked at it, you thought you've got a young lady whose skirt is just floating around her body. And I, I mean, that, that excites me. The idea, which we agreed on really from the beginning, was that we wanted to look at kind of basic things, you know, kind of everyday things, either everyday to us throughout our our years or 
every day just like what people call classic pieces of clothing, a Shetland sweater, a pencil skirt, a shift, things like that. And we wanted to keep it like a very dressmaker approach, like an old school dressmaker. For me, when I use the word dressmaker, it's like what my grandmother, when my grandmother needed a skirt made, she would buy some fabric from Jerry Brown on 57th Street because he had the most beautiful fabrics. And she'd take it to her dressmaker who would make the skirt for her 16 inches from the floor with a one-inch waistband. Like, she was so specific about it. And I, I think back to some of our early shows, and, you know, that was a word I used to use an awful lot. Like, it, when we started playing with the scale of buttons and how tiny the shoulder was and the way you sat in a sleeve, it was, like, naive. It was not sophisticated in terms of the make of the clothing. What I think is I'm looking at something very, very simple, and the complexities of it are very beautiful in a way, and that we could kind of carry something off that comes across as like two side seams, you know, but knowing that inside there's this very complicated situation, I guess it's kind of a, an achievement in a way. It is because the pieces, as you say, are simple or simple adjacent, but they're very distinctive because of the the sort of the shape and the proportions of them. I think when uh, when people see those sweaters, you know, women or men wearing those sweaters, it will be very easy for people to say, oh, yes, Marc Jacobs put those on the runway for spring 2024 because there is this distinctiveness to the pieces. I wonder, you know, sometimes as someone who buys a lot of fashion or buys some fashion pieces, I know I always, I'm always drawn to the kind of strong piece in a collection. When you look at the collection that you just put on the runway, what pieces do you think make those statements? They all made it. Um, I think I'm partial right now to those Shetland sweaters. I think the shape came out particularly well, and they read very well. Um, I liked, uh, there was a black shift that had very large paillettes, and I'm I really love that because one of the other things we were looking at was this beautiful painting by Alex Katz. And it kind of came as an afterthought. I mean, again, it came up during the process, but it was just all these women and, and the painting, his style of painting is so flat and they were all in a black shift. And I just thought like, you know, there's nothing better than a good black cocktail dress. Like it just doesn't get better than that. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So let's let's shift a little bit and talk about your generation. And uh, <laughs> let's talk about pre, pre-grunge. pre uh, You were uh, a New York kid and at the clubs in the 80s. Can you paint a picture of your Charivari days? So I got this job at this store that had all this great designer fashion. I mean, that's why I wanted to work there, because I wanted to be around the labels. Like, I wanted to be around Mugler, Gautier, Yoji Yamamoto, like— it just excited me, right? And I got this job. And then I was going to clubs. I was going to a rock and roll club on the Upper West Side called Hurrah. 
And I started going to Studio 54 at 16. I was in the High School of Art and Design. I was dressing up, wearing like jumpsuits where it shoved like three shoulder pads to make it look like it was Mugler, but it was really from Saturday's generation at Bloomingdale's. <laughs> and I went through a bunch of looks when I was younger. I mean, I guess I still do that. But yeah, I mean, one day I dyed my hair orange and I was wearing these kind of like futuristic jumpsuits. And the next day I was wearing tiny little bow ties. And then my hair, like I had my hair super, super long. I started wearing Robert Lee Morris artwear jewelry. At 17, I met Kanza Yamamoto through my roommate who was working for Robert Lee Morris. Who, Robert Lee Morris was doing the jewelry for Kanzai. Kanzai asked, I was 17, and he asked me if I would... Uh, be creative and organize some kind of after party, which he typically did after a show. And I was, you know, I was super excited for that opportunity. So I found a fish market on the Upper West Side that would allow me to rent the fish market with the fish in it because the theme of his collection that season was Kanzai Restaurant. And it had like plastic, transparent plastic pockets, which had like rubber sushi in it. So I had this idea. I made this party, asked Joey Arias, who was a friend of Kansai's, to perform with his group, Strange Party. They played like they pretended they were playing guitar on this huge, huge, enormous fish. It was so weird. And then I, I made these necklaces out of aquarium tubing with plastic bags, and each one had like a live goldfish that each of the guests got. I mean, it was it was crazy. You know, so I was very kind of out there. I mean, I was out in New York City, and I was starting to meet people in fashion, and I was very popular at Sharavari because all these different people, famous, not famous, would come to me. And I guess it was my energy and my, again, my wonder, my curiosity that just propelled me forward. And I guess that was really attractive to people. Mm -hmm. Still is. Hope so. And you went to Parsons. I went to Parsons. To study and get yes. a degree. Yes. I did not get my degree at Parsons, um, but I did complete the program. Right, and you uh, sort of were getting your degree right on the streets of New York and at the and at the store. Well, I mean, and I was meeting all these people. Yeah, one of my teachers, who I liked very much, and I know she was very fond of me too. But sometimes, and I didn't mean it to be, but sometimes she would reply to me like, "You are so jaded." And I never thought I was jaded. I just was out there doing a lot of stuff. So you leave Parsons, and very quickly you meet uh, your former business partner, Robert Duffy. Yes. And you set up a, a brand, right? Yeah. Uh, Robert was at that Parsons show, and he was working for a company called Reuben Thomas. It was a 7th Avenue company who made um, these very, very dynasty-like dresses, you know, lots of beading, lots of shoulder treatments. Uh, for a, a designer called Jonathan Hitchcock. So Robert was working in the showroom, and he was running the showroom, selling these dresses, and it was very successful. But Reuben Thomas wanted to go into what they called the junior market, but it was, at, it was starting to start up where it was the contemporary market because it was kind of more sophisticated and in a different world than this junior market, you know, which was kind of a 60s, early 70s terminology. So they were looking at different designers to do this, known, known designers. And then Robert, who they trusted very much, said, let's not take someone known. Let's start a new person and give them a chance to do this. And I just saw someone at Parsons. His name is Mark Jacobs. And I think he should design this new line that we're going to do. So that's how it all started. 
And you learned on the job. Yeah, I learned on the job. I knew nothing about how to do this. They set me up on like a little, like grungy little building. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, how do I find a pattern maker? Where do I make appointments to look at fabrics? Like, I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. So I just asked people. And little by little, I had a studio with two seamstresses and one pattern maker and one cutter. And I, you know, I learned how to do it. What made you decide to take the Perry Ellis job when you did? Were you a natural fit for it? Were you an unlikely fit? So I think it always depends on who you ask sort of thing. But Robert McDonald, who was a great friend of Perry's, very close to Perry, was basically, he was running the estate and the design business. And I used to, I met Perry when I first started working at Charvari, but briefly, I went up to him as a 16-year-old and I said, oh my God, you're my favorite designer. And what would you suggest I do because I really want to pursue this career? And he said, well, my two assistants are at Parsons. That's what I would suggest you do, go to Parsons. But I used to see Perry once in a while. He lived at the Epithian, which I was on 72nd Street. And I think that was like two, one or two blocks over. So once in a while, I'd see him on the street, and he invited me to a show that he did at Saks. I did that. And then this year, cut to years later, he's no longer alive. He's gone. And um, Robert McDonald, I guess Patricia Pastor and Jed Crisella were t- Perry's two assistants, both Parsons students. And then Patricia was made like the head of the design at Perry Ellis, of women's design at Perry Ellis. And Robert McDonald was there and being this great friend. And he, he and Carrie Donovan, who you might want to explain mm-hmm. who she is, they – I guess they thought I had a certain whimsy in what I was very naively making and showing. And I guess it was Robert who felt that I had the spirit of Perry, maybe not the experience – definitely not the experience of Patricia – But the brand had become, I mean, Patricia was making nice clothes, very nice clothes for women who were were to work, you know. And I think Robert's mindset was like, we need to get back to the spirit and the whimsy of what Perry Ellis once was. So he chose me and I couldn't say no. Carrie Donovan, another legendary fashion editor, famous for those iconic brown glasses. And the New York Times magazine, Fashion of the Times. The collection everyone knows is grunge, but can you tell me about the first one you did for Perry Ellis? So the first collection for Perry Ellis, I, I mean, I got a lot of hell for that too. It was a very weird time at Vogue. Grace Mirabella had just been let go, and Anna took the job of, you know, editor-in-chief. And Anna was a big team, Mark Jacobs. She had come to some of my shows when she was at uh, HG, right? Somehow... Um, you know, we had this sort of connection. And so she had championed me and supported me before she came to Vogue. And I, when I showed my first show for Perry Ellis, it was a lot of these little bucket hats and satin and odd materials, velvet. And all of the girls had like a bob. It wasn't meant to be an homage to Anna, but of course, that's how everyone read it. And it was very kind of, well, at the time, I felt it had like the spirit of Perry. It had, um, you know, we did these American flag cashmere blankets in crazy colors like bubblegum pink with ochre yellow. And and the girls were wrapped in them. And there was like such sort of spirit um, in the colors and the shapes and everything. And, and Anna applauded it. 
But then there were all these old school friends of the House of Perry, which included maybe, you know, some of the Mirabella crew and some of these other people. And they just thought I was a heretic because I had taken this brand that they felt they owned, or not owned, but, you know, they were on a different, they were in a different place. So they didn't like that I was there or what I was doing there. But then you had like this new guard who was like saying, yeah, this is exactly what we need, you know. So it was one of those moments. And that was that was three years before the actual grunge show. So, I mean, it, it's the whole subject coming up again of this generational generational change and when when it happens in fashion it can be quite uh jarring for the for the people who've been around well i think the thing is again it's like going back to my shrink in this discussion is that somehow we're all smart enough to know that change occurs but there's also something maybe in some of us that thinks well of course change is going to happen but it won't affect me or it won't happen to me or something Talking about the the grunge collection, though, uh, did you anticipate the reaction that it would cause? Did you welcome it? So, so there were some seasons at Perry Ellis where I got my hand slapped after the first one, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do what I guess they expect of me, which is clothes more for women, like the ladies who lunch. Like, I somehow th- thought that my position needed to look more like Bill Blass than like Mark Jacobs. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's what I did, and I did that for a couple of seasons, and it was like, I can't. I can't do this. It's like it doesn't feel good and I'm not enjoying it and it doesn't seem like to be working or whatever. And so we did a collection called the Rock and Roll Circus or that I named the Rock and Roll Circus. And then I felt like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to do top hats and lizard pants and, you know, tailcoats and I want to, you know, I want to have fun and make noise. So that was that. And that led – and then I felt so good about that that pursuit of the grunge collection and responding to what I was really loving in photography from Corinne Day, David Sims, Jurgen Teller, the music of Courtney Love, of Sonic Youth, of, of Kurt Cobain, you know, all of that was what I was loving. And, and there were, I mean, and I had friends who looked like that, you know, and I just thought like, this is what I want to do. I want to respond to what I really feel and what I really love. And that was grunge. So that, I mean, that's how that came about. And did I think it was going to have the response it did? No, I think it just I just felt like people are going to like it or they're not going to like it. But I didn't think it would be such a topic of conversation or of such interest, you know. You, uh, w- your job was terminated at, at Perry Ellis. <laughs> did you think it was the end of your career? I mean, what, go back to that moment. How did, how did it feel? Well, I actually wasn't terminated right after uh, right after the grunge collection. I mean, it was shortly after. I did start working on a, another season, but then they decided to discontinue the women's collections. I mean, I have no shame around the idea of being fired for the grunge. I think it actually makes it better. You know, like, oh, you were you were fired, you were let go because it was such a disgrace. I mean, that sounds so much better than probably what really happened. But um, – I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew, I remember talking to Robert and thinking like, well, what are we going to do next? And we couldn't, we had a non-compete thing, so we weren't allowed to work for a year. But then we also got this financial settlement and we decided to open a store. And both Robert and I were like, this is what we love to do. So we just have to find a way to do it again, you know. And then I started doing a consulting job. He mortgaged his house. We had the settlement money from uh, Perry Ellis. So we opened the store in Mercer Street, which we couldn't actually open because we had no money left to make clothes. So uh, that was kind of a funny backwards way of doing things. 
It was a great store. And very quickly, in a matter of years, there's another major milestone. You get uh, appointed to Louis Vuitton and a a big job because Louis Vuitton had never had ready to wear. Mm. And you did the unexpected, I you could even say iconoclastic thing of your first show, showing practically <laughs> no handbags, right? One. One. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing to get that job. And I, I mean, it would be very difficult to explain all the feelings that came up and all the fear. And um, that first collection, yeah, I, I felt like I couldn't win. You know, if I did what people expected, meaning covered everything in the monogram, then they'd be disappointed because they got what they expected. And if I uh, didn't do what they expected, then they'd be disappointed that I didn't give them what they wanted. So I just thought I was screwed, you know. And also there was no archive to look at. There was no nothing. There was <laughs> – so I did a lot of like – mental masturbation. And I was like, hmm, what is it really about? What is Louis Vuitton? What is the essence of Louis Vuitton? And I came up with this idea that really what it is is this monogram. And if I celebrate it, then then that will be good. That will be what people want. But that first season, I was adamant about not doing it. So, you know, all the monogram was inside a white bonded cotton raincoat or underneath the buttons. So you couldn't see it. You know, trying to put myself back in that moment, uh, I think what I felt was, you know, you made Louis Vuitton cool. Like, it didn't have a sense of coolness for people in in fashion. It was an established brand, a, a legacy brand. It was for old rich people, is how I felt when in my 20s, you know? And suddenly it was something that we all wanted. Yeah. Mr. Arnaud, I mean, I, I just completely you know, owe it all to him, really. And uh, he trusted me with this huge brand, even though the people who he had put into these, you know, very big positions were not necessarily happy with his choice of me to do this. They weren't happy with the idea of ready-to-wear. They weren't happy with the idea of change. They weren't happy with an American, a young American designer coming in and deciding what this, this future would look like. But um, I remember, you know, as I struggled with some of these obstacles and people, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd once in a while have lunch with Mr. Arnaud and he'd say, like, don't worry about them. I hired you for what I believe you can bring. And if you, you know, just don't worry about them. Just do your thing. And uh, I think <clears throat> I, I did the first thing that I did that gained, like, some recognition and commercial success was what I called monogram vernis. And my idea was to, you know, use the monogram embossed so that you see it and don't see it and to bring a new surface. Like, everything was so dull and a bit masculine and coloring at Vuitton. So I thought this was the way to do color, shine, monogram, you know. And it, it he was impressed by it, Mr. Arnaud, and he took one of the bags home to show his wife, and she thought it was very attractive, which was a good sign. And so they went with it, and that was a big success. And I think that helped me to build confidence about introducing things that were not expected. So then I invited Stephen Sprouse to come and deface the monogram with graffiti, which the powers there were like, this is not allowed. You cannot touch the monogram. And I didn't listen. I just did it and, like, sent it out and to their horror— and, of course, uh, there were waiting lists for bags, you know, and they'd never experienced that before in their their whole career. I remember those, too, so clearly. I sometimes see other editors carrying their, their vintage pieces <laughs> on, on the airplanes to the shows. Yeah. So 
talking about longevity. Yeah. And you, of course, had other collaborators at Vuitton, too. Yes. Uh, Takashi Murakami. Yes. Being the, uh, an, the Japanese artist, Richard Prince, mm-hmm. the American artist. Yayoi Kusama also. Right. Yeah. That, the whole collaboration thing is a topic that people are always interested in hearing from me on because um, I think now we live in a time where this idea of collaboration is like so mainstream. But at the time where I invited Stephen in or Takashi in, it was – I romanticized my position at Louis Vuitton. I, I was constantly thinking, what does it mean that I'm here? You know, And I thought, my name's not on the door. Why am I doing what I'm doing and what should I be doing? And I thought of myself – this New Yorker in Paris, and I thought like, wow, when I think about the history of fashion and I think about Coco Chanel and I think about Schiaparelli, who were two of my heroes, I think they were always collaborating with Jean Cocteau or Picasso on a set or all this. And I, I thought that was a magical time where people who were in creative positions, they didn't even think of it as collaborating. They just – they gravitated towards each other and they made things together and they had ideas and they just – and I just thought like, oh, that's what I'm going to do at Freetown. I'm going to use my role here as a way to bring in other creatives that I can make things with. Coco Chanel and Elsa Scaparelli were two of your heroes, you said. Did you know about them at a young age? How did you sort of start understanding that you were interested in fashion? I knew I loved clothes, and I knew I was excited when I got back to school clothes. And I think... I mean, there must have been some movies where I loved what the women were wearing. I mean, I definitely, at an early age, saw, you know, adult movies that, I mean, I don't mean adult as in porn. (laughs) That was later. Um, I I saw costumes. I mean, whether it was Jane Fonda in Clute and a brown Norrell sequin, you know, like, I didn't know that it was Norrell, but as I got interested in Liza Minnelli in Cabaret or Hel- Barbara Streisand in Hello, Dolly, now this is like the gayest list ever, <laughs> but, uh, or Judy Garland, I mean, perfect gay list, um, or Marlena Dietrich, you know, all those iconic uh, women. Um then I found out, uh, or, or, or Mae West, and finding out like, oh, it was Scaparelli who did this dress for Mae West, and it was so-and-so who made this dress for Jane Fonda. You know, and then I, start, I had such a huge appetite for anything fashion. You lived with your, your paternal grandmother Mother. when you were uh, a teenager. Did she have magazines around? Was she interested in fashion Well, okay, so she was very interested in fashion. She didn't, she, I wouldn't say she had magazines around, but... She did shop at Bergdorf and Saks and Lord and Taylor, Bonwood Teller. A lot of these places are no longer around, but um, Saks is, Bergdorf's is for sure. Um, <clears throat> but my grandmother loved to get dressed, and she, even if it was to go to the corner to to get the, you know, to get to go to the butcher and the supermarket, she it didn't matter. She spent her time and had her process and her um, rituals and routines. We've talked a lot about aging um, and the challenges. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> no, I mean, I, it's, my, it's something I think about every day. What What do you think is the best part? I th- I don't know that I'm fully there in terms of. Um, I mean, I, I certainly accept it. I mean, look, I'm I'm alive. I'm well. I'm healthy. I have wonderful people in my life. I get to. I'm working on a house and making it just. It, into this beautiful place, and um, I get to work in fashion, which I love, still love, with a group of incredible, talented people. 
So there's so much good, right? And I started um, really enjoying quiet time and calm time. I mean, it's very unusual for me. I am really getting pleasure out of doing things like reading a book in quiet or waking up and having coffee and seeing the sunrise. And it all sounds so cliche. And even as I describe it, it's like, oh, that is so old. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? You are so old. You're like watching the sunrise and reading a book in the afternoon and getting, you know, going to bed early. It's like, oh, my God. As I say it, I'm just laughing. Speaking of reading, because I see you posting on Instagram reading, mm. what are you reading now? I just started Our Lady of the Flowers by Jean Genet. Mm. <laughs> Enjoying it? I'm only, I'm actually on the introduction by Sartre, so I'm not sure it's already a bit of a trip, but I'm sure I'll get into it. And anything that you've read in the last few months that you have oh really my, liked? So many books I've read. I read um, Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal. I read um, Answered Prayers by Truman Capote. I read um, uh, The Swimming Pool Library. I read, uh, oh God, I've read so many books. Oh, I read The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Um, yeah, a lot of books. Well, since you mentioned Truman Capote, you have to tell us what you think of The Swan so far. Well, I love Ryan Murphy, and I love what he does. Uh, I think the actor's name is Tom Hollander, who's playing Truman Capote. Mm -hmm. He is phenomenal to watch. When he's on the screen, I really enjoy it. Um, I am enjoying the series because I love the subject matter. You know, I just watched episode two last night. I went to the premiere for the first episode, and, you know, I love Gus Van Sant as a director. I, I mean, there's so much to love in this for me. Uh, so that's my opinion. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Babe Paley's dress in the in the scene uh, that shot in Bodega Bay, where they're in Jamaica, I think. That that one really got me. I can't wait to see the black and white ball. Yeah. Yeah, the black and white ball is always a good thing. <laughs> Do you uh, watch anything else on TV these days that you like? My favorite show in the world is Love on the Spectrum, hmm. which is um, the life and dating life of people who are uh, on the autism spectrum. And I've never seen anything that just, I mean, it moves me to tears every time, every one of the people. So, and that just had a new season. So we kind of binge watched it and then in a night, it's great. Um, and then I watch some trashy TV like Love Island or 90 Day Fiance. You know, when I can't bear to like think about anything, those are the two go-tos. Mm -hmm. And uh, so tell us about a normal day. You wake up to watch the sunrise. Yeah, or or the rainfall. Um, a normal day. So uh, since I've been living in this house, um, my normal day is waking up. I go um, make coffee and uh, or espresso, and I take it either, to, either over to the window or to watch the fish. I have two fish now. And I had a few more, but unfortunately, some of them didn't make it. Um, and I love sitting and having my coffee and watching these very playful oranda is the breed of fish I have. And or sitting and watching the sunrise. And usually Lady, who's our dog, she comes up and joins me, whether I'm watching the fish or I'm on the couch watching the sunrise. And uh, then I get showered and ready for my day, um, which typically involves... Um, if I'm working, it typically involves a commute into the city, which I never had to experience before now that I live out, out there in Rye. 
um, commuting, working, or doing things like this. And then I think I have Bergdorf Goodman this afternoon. Then I will sit in traffic for a while as I commute home, uh, watch some TV or read or both, and then go to bed. What do you do on your commute? Do you listen to podcasts or? Um, so I think I'll probably get to the point of listening to podcasts, but actually I really love the quiet and I meditate. I practice transcendental meditation. So I do I do two meditations a day and one, the, the car is the perfect thing, you know, because you're sitting up, your feet are on the ground. I mean, it's like you couldn't be more like open and connected in some way. Have you meditated for a long time? Um, on and off. I'm in a program for, you know, recovery and meditation and prayer are very important parts of that recovery. And I do both of those things religiously every day. And uh, it's working out pretty well for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was a good therapy session. To <laughs> well, thank you, Mark Jacobs, for being here. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Nicole. All right, that's it for today's episode. See you next week. Bye. The Run-Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns, with engineering from Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and James Yost. It is mixed by Mike Kutchman. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier, and you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru, and you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.